Welcome to the Power of podcast series. In our collection, we dive into critical, thought-provoking and contemporary content to stimulate debate and dialogue, all with the aim of driving gender equality in global health. I'm Joanna Riha, a research fellow within the Gender and Health Hub at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health, based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. There is a very real growing global backlash against gender equality and women's rights, which is further fueling health inequities. And while improving the representation of women in leadership roles is one step towards institutionalizing change and countering this backlash, addressing complex health inequities requires more than gender parity. It requires leadership that goes beyond authority to responsibility. And that's one of the reasons we have focused this mini-series on the power of feminist leadership, a leadership that is firmly grounded in responsibility, responsibility to oneself and one's community. To counter the misconception that feminist leadership is women's leadership, we've dedicated several episodes to feminist leadership beyond the sex and gender binary. In the previous two episodes, we heard from Simone Hill, a lesbian and bisexual activist and founder of PETAL, promoting empowerment through awareness for lesbian and bisexual women in Belize. In the next two episodes, we'll hear from Kobe Smith, a young male leader from Guyana who has held various local, regional and international leadership positions. For instance, in Guyana, Kobe is the co-founder and vice president of the Sustainable Youth Network Guyana, SYNG. It's a youth-led, youth-serving organization that seeks to build awareness about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Regionally, Kobe has served as director of the Caribbean Vulnerable Communities Coalition, a Jamaican-based coalition of community leaders and NGOs that are advocates of service providers and working on and with Caribbean populations that are especially vulnerable to HIV. Kobe is also a member of FOS Feminista's Board of Directors and co-chairs its Advocacy Committee. And he's served as the board of IPPF, the International Planned Parenthood Federation. Huge, huge thanks for joining us, Kobe, as part of this podcast series. In your own words, I'd really like to hear what does feminist leadership mean for you? Do you even like the term feminist leadership as a label for how you lead? Great. Thanks for having me, Johanna. It's incredible to chat with you. And it's even more amazing to have this opportunity to engage on this topic as a young Black man in the Caribbean, but also as someone who works in feminist leadership. And it is an honor because we don't oftentimes see young men and boys participating in these particular spaces. And so from the outset, I want to say thank you for the opportunity to really engage and to provide the platform to add my voice to the conversation. Feminist leadership for me is informed by personal experiences and if you look across the world or across sub-regions of young professionals, advocates, activists, youth leaders, program managers, whoever they are, 
in some way, their work has been or was inspired by some personal experience. For me, my immersion into feminist leadership was really curated and motivated by my mother. Unfortunately, she passed seven years ago after she lost her battle to ovarian cancer. And she not only died because cancer is a monster, but she died because she lacked access to quality health services and information. And so many vulnerable women and girls across our world really are dying because they lack access to critical, life-saving services and care. And my mother's was one of those persons, was a middle-income woman. She, of course, wasn't rich. She was a hardworking woman who really was fearless. But we can't necessarily be fearless and powerful if we're not healthy and if we don't have the opportunity to become healthy. And so I think for me, I have come into the field of gender equality and global health and really advocating for the health rights and well-being of women and girls because of my mother. I think she would have been alive today if the health system really provided for her in a meaningful, wholesome way, and it did not. And so part of my work locally, regionally, and internationally is really to Number one, understand the unmet needs of vulnerable populations of people, women, girls, youth, marginalized youth, LGBTQ plus persons, indigenous people, and others. All of those persons who are really living on the periphery of poverty, of insufficiency, of abuse, of violence, of inequalities, really understanding their unmet needs, but also crafting programs and projects to really respond to those unmet needs to ensure that we provide health care where it's needed, to ensure that we contribute to policy and laws, to ensure that we also engage with them to understand what their needs are. Because oftentimes we see policies and programs being crafted and the persons that those programs are supposed to serve, they oftentimes don't participate in a meaningful, wholesome way. And so feminist leadership for me is informed by personal experiences in some ways, but it's also about bringing those persons based on their experiences, to the front and center. Women, girls, youth, men and boys, oftentimes all of us, because feminist leadership is not just about women. It's about all of us contributing to the whole. So that's how I see it. Thank you so much, Kobe, for sharing such a personal story, which I really think hits home for many people. I mean, often when we talk about leadership, it's removed from the person. And so this personal story and the fact that you've underscored your personal reasons for leading the way you do really brings home the fact that feminist leadership is precisely about that, not simply people who operate as machines, who churn out targets and achievements, but people who are people. 
And so that personal dimension, I think, is extremely valuable and thank you for highlighting it. I also really appreciated the fact that you reinforced the point that feminist leadership is not just about one group, it's about everybody, and especially those at the margins who are structurally excluded. And I wanted to ask if you could tell me a bit more about how you've managed to really embody and live some of the principles and values you've mentioned in terms of your various leadership roles. So whether it's in Guyana or some of the international roles you hold, and maybe also you could tell us a bit more about some of the challenges. Right. Absolutely. I would use my example of FOSS Feminista, which is the International Alliance for Sexual and Reproductive Health Rights and Justice that is based in New York, really with more than 140 partners across the world, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, and really across the globe, really for us to support partners to do, as we would say, the backbreaking work of providing sexual and reproductive health services and care, whether it's HIV testing, whether it's contraceptives, whether it's cancer screening, whether it's also comprehensive sexuality education. And so what the organization really tries to do is to ensure that those particular partners have access to the resources to be able to do that. Unfortunately, considering the global challenges, it is difficult for grassroots organizations to really serve women, girls, LGBTQ plus persons and others if they don't have the cushion and the support of organizations at the global level. And even for false feminists being led in the global south, it's really about how do you see these organizations, these partners on the ground supporting that particular work. And so for me, feminist leadership is also about providing flexible funding for partners to be able to lead that particular work. And a lot of times we talk about it in isolation and we don't talk about it with dollar signs because you cannot lead and provide services and care to people if you don't have the money and the finances to have it done. And it's not just the access to those financial resources, but it's access to financial resources in a flexible way. Because oftentimes when we think about donor funding, we think about it from this rigid perspective, which oftentimes excludes lots of organizations that are led by women that are led by youth, that are led by LGBTQ plus persons and others. And so part of feminist leadership is also understanding how are we making the, the work of these organizations easier, which in fact has a ripple effect for the communities of people, gender diverse people and others on the ground. And so using the experiences of false Feminista, which is to provide that kind of support two partners across the world to ensure that service delivery continues in spite of the COVID pandemic, in spite of the climate crisis, in spite, using the example, let's say, of Haiti, in spite of political uprisings and social chaos, if you, you, you want to use that particular term, in a country that has really faced so much and so the idea is 
looking to those particular challenges, whether it's climate, whether it's politics, whether it is the environment, it is how do we, in a way, understand the unmet needs of people to say that even if there's a hurricane in Puerto Rico, as that was the case, we're still going to show up for you. Even if the president of Haiti was assassinated and there are violent protests on the streets, we're going to show up and we're going to ensure that a clinic remains open because regardless of a hurricane, regardless of an earthquake, people still get pregnant. People are still raped. People are still abused. People still get HIV. And so the question is, how do we respond? And we have to respond from a place of humanity to really say that we have to continue to provide these services regardless of the challenges. Because at the end of the day, people die when people get pregnant and they're unable to have those clear options. Let's even talk about abortion care. And there is no way where this is done in a safe environment Oftentimes, those particular persons go to extreme unhealthy measures to really terminate their pregnancies. And so they die. And the challenging part of it is that poor people, women of color, gender diverse people, oftentimes those people face the brunt of those particular consequences because of, of course, their income status because of their identity and all of that. And so we have to come to a place where we understand how do we, in fact, stand in the gap for those particular communities of people? How do we do it? I could also use the example of working with SASOD. SASOD is a society, society against sexual orientation discrimination in Guyana, and SASOD is a leading human rights organization in this country as relates to protecting the rights of LGBTQ plus persons. And I remember while I was the human rights coordinator, we had, especially during the pandemic, so many gender diverse people, LGBTQ plus persons who were really finding it hard to stay in this country during the pandemic knowing full well the experiences of discrimination, knowing full well the experiences of legal persecution. So part of my work was to facilitate asylum support to those particular persons who really need it to leave this country and to be safe. Because the first part of asylum is to understand how exactly are we providing safety to people before we, in fact, have the conversation about how they're going to get a job when they leave and all that. The first thing is safety. And I remember months later, after I facilitated asylum support for this gay couple who were really having it challenging, they messaged a few months later to say, well, they were messaging to say, oh, we arrived in Europe. But when they sent a message to say that we were finally granted full asylum, we were able to get funding and, and support to rent a particular space and all of that. We're also having our official documents for permanent residency 
that's really how I see feminist leadership to say that we really respond in those particular ways to those particular people, regardless of the circumstances. Because COVID really devastated countries. But we really have to understand that in spite of those particular challenges with a deadly pandemic, you still have to get people to safety in some ways. And that's part of the work that we really tried to lead at a local level. Thanks, Kobe. Those are two very powerful examples. When we launched Srilata Badliwala's think piece on feminist leadership, what it is and why it matters, we had a webinar. And actually one of the points that came up in the panel discussion was that even though we might be working for organizations that are striving to advance rights and equity, we've often internalized a lot of very patriarchal norms and values, whether we like it or not, and recognize it or not. And this can affect how we treat colleagues, you know, always wanting to be the one recognized, the one in the limelight, and putting other colleagues down to get ahead. And this runs the spectrum right through exploitation, abuse, and harassment at the workplace. And so there's often this mismatch, I guess, between how we behave with one another within an organization versus principles and values. And I just wanted to ask, you know, have you experienced it? And what are some of your thoughts on this and how one might go about beginning to change a work culture that has unintentionally even internalized these patriarchal norms? Yeah, I think it is most disappointing when we hear of stories of feminist organizations who are supposed to be leading by example when they really fall short of the standards of accountability, of justice, of human rights, of just good governance. And we've had a couple of examples within the past three years. So one of the examples that I would highlight, which is a global example, is the situation at Women Deliver. Perhaps you know of Women Deliver, one of the leading gender equality and women's empowerment organizations where almost three years ago, former staff of Women Deliver, you know, stepped forward in a very public way to say that this environment was not working for them. Allegations of microaggressions, allegations of discrimination and, and misconduct of senior leadership. And so I'm a Women Deliver Young Leader from 2018. And when I heard that, when my colleagues and I heard that, we were like, what? This is unacceptable. And allegations of that magnitude requires investigation, and it also requires action and accountability. And I think sometimes we have to be clear that it's one thing for us to act, and that's okay. But we also have to come to the place of providing accountability when certain allegations are brought forward. And it's important for us to address those particular concerns. And we have to be clear too, Joanna, we're all humans. And so we could be human rights activists and advocates and all of that, but we still come with our own trauma. We still come with our anxieties, our depression, our abuse, past experiences and all of that. And it is possible that we come into a space and we offload that. We offload our biases. We offload our racism. We offload our sexism. And I'm not justifying that, but I'm saying that people are socialized in certain ways in their particular communities. 
And if organizations don't have solid procedures and protocols to ensure that those persons that you're bringing into the fold to lead this important work, if we don't ensure that those persons are meeting the standard, then that is problematic. And it's also problematic, and also citing the experiences from Women Deliver, because this field of gender equality and women's empowerment and human rights, we already have the opposition not wanting to fund our issues. They don't want to support abortion. They don't want to support global health initiatives. You had the situation of, for example, conservative presidents in the U.S., every time they're elected, they would institute the global gag rule, which restricts global health funding to family planning organizations that support abortion. And so you have that kind of opposition. You have opposition in the media. You have opposition on the ground with the religious leaders and with other conservative actors. And when our people, and I want to say our people because we're a community, advocates, activists, all these professionals, youth leaders, when our people misconduct themselves, the opposition, they glorify and they say, yes, you see, we shouldn't fund them because look at what they're doing. How can you prop yourself up as a human rights activist and you're tolerating racism? So they're going to say, yes, they support racism. And yes, they support sexism. And that is problematic because we're giving the opposition ammunition to use against us and we lose sight of our purpose. And our purpose is to ensure that we protect the health, rights, and well-being of vulnerable communities of people. Women, girls, gender-diverse people, adolescents, youth. So we need to get our act together because while we waste time to discriminate against people and abuse them in workspaces, we are not serving our purpose. And I think it's important to ensure, coming back to the whole umbrella of what feminist leadership is, is also to ensure that organizationally, your board and your management should reflect the people you serve. And a lot of times, the organizations that fall short of feminist leadership Those are the ones where you see one group of people leading all the time. There's no diversity. There's no inclusion. There is no representation. Do you have young people on your board? Do you have gender diverse people on your board? Do you have women on your board? Do you have men who support the issues on your board? It's not just about having men because men are all over the the place. You could select any manner on on the road to be on your board. But what exactly are your board members bringing to the table? Are you just saying that you just want board members who are just going to bring money? I mean, that's not how you can get money from any place. And money is a good thing because money could be used to provide services and care. That's fine. But I'm not sure that you want 
money from people who are part of the colonial system and coloniality and oppression, I think that it is possible for us to prioritize diversity and inclusion, for us to prioritize representation. And the research shows that organizations that promote diversity and inclusion are the most successful organizations across the board. And it's not just organizations that are working on gender equality. It's organizations across the board, whether they're working in tech, in science, in innovation, in automation, in manufacturing, whatever those organizations do, the most successful ones are those that have a meaningful approach in including persons who they serve. And so I think we need to take all of that into consideration just to say, how are we exactly leading in organizations? I always say to my colleagues, I'm very selective with the boards I serve on. Number one, I don't have the time. (laughs) And so if I decide to serve on a particular board or a particular organization, it means that I have the time or I'm sacrificing some time. But I always say I do not want to be in a room where everybody says the same thing, where we all look the same. It adds no value because if you have a decision to be made on a board or multiple decisions for an entire year and the meeting is called and everybody says, yes, 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 yes. Aren't you asking questions? Aren't you questioning things to understand? Okay, what is the impact on that on women? Are men involved in some ways? Are we considering this approach to ensure that we respond to the climate crisis? Like, what are we doing? And I remember jokingly a couple of months ago, we had a sidebar from a particular, after a particular board meeting. And my colleagues were saying, we were having like dinner and drinks and my colleagues were saying, you know, Kobe, every time there is an agenda item on the board, like you always have a contribution. Like you always ask a question and they were laughing at me. I'm like, yeah, because like we have to ask questions. And I don't think that they were saying that in like an annoying way where they're fed up of me, but they're saying like that should be celebrated. And Joanna, when I tell you, It is truly an honor for me as a 25-year-old young Black man to be serving globally on global boards. I don't take that for granted. And I say my contribution and my seat on a board, I think it's supposed to reflect people who look like me from the Caribbean, from the communities I came from or I come from. And so when I get there, I'm not just sitting there as Kobe Smith. I'm sitting there as some young Black man in Kingston, Jamaica. I'm sitting there as a young person in Belize. I'm sitting there as a young person in Haiti. And so we have to be able to do the work and to not speak on behalf of people, but to ensure that we bring their experiences to the board, because all of us, you you can't have 50 million seats on a board. It's not logistically possible. 
or doesn't make sense. And so if you are given the opportunity to serve and to lead, then your approach, your contributions have to be guided and informed by the people you are purporting to serve. And I don't mean to hit on people who don't have community experience or experience in community engagement, but I think it's meaningful to have persons who were working at a grassroots level on a board because it's not just that, okay, we're trained in finance or we're trained in law or we're trained in audit. It's about, yes, you can have all of that, but are you responding to those particular needs? That's the challenge. This brings us to the end of the first episode with Kobe. This episode, as well as the next, are both dedicated to Kobe's mother. In the next episode, Kobe will tell us more about how he remains grounded when he's in positions of power, as well as he'll talk to us about what wellness really means for him. And if you haven't already, please do visit the Gender and Health Hub website, where you'll find Srilata Batliwala's think piece on transformative feminist leadership, what it is and why it matters. You can visit our website at www.genderhealthhub.org or you can visit the UNUIIGH website, which is www.iigh.unu.edu. You can also find us on Twitter at UNU underscore IIGH or the Gender and Health Hub Twitter handle at Gender Health Hub. You can also send us feedback or suggestions via email. The email address is iigh-info at unu.edu. So please join us for the next episode as we'll continue these conversations with Kobe. Thanks once again for listening. This is a podcast recording by the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. The views expressed are those of the speakers only.